through dungeons deep and caverns old. The pines were roaring along the heights. The winds were moaning in the night. The fire was red The same results are gotten in poll after poll, survey after survey. Ask who the best author of the past century was, or the best book, and the answers will consistently come back as J.R.R. Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings, respectively. These results are gotten in Britain, America, Australia, and even Germany. The story of J.R.R. Tolkien and the chancy route his beloved fantasy writings took to see the light of day is an extraordinary one. Author Devin Brown has set down the tale of an epic storyteller in his new book, Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. Our guest today is a Lilly Scholar and Professor of English at Ashbury University, where he teaches a class on J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. The book outlines how if things had gone differently at a number of points, the world might never have seen The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings in print, much less on the big screen. There is, in fact, a new movie about The Hobbit series in theaters this month, which makes us an excellent time to ask author Devin Brown to talk about the remarkable chain of events outlined in his book. With great pleasure, we uh, welcome Devin Brown to the program and say thank you for joining us at Radio Parallax, Professor Brown. Well, thank you. It may surprise some listeners to learn that Tolkien, this academic, he actually fought in World War I at the Battle of the Somme, one of the great disasters of that or any war, and he survived only because he took ill and got sent home. His companions who stayed and fought perished. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's not every author whose, whose own life is as interesting and remarkable uh, and full of coincidences as his fiction. But yeah, I would say Tolkien's life is full of these kind of strange coincidences, things that almost didn't happen or just barely did happen. And so, yeah, the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings can be described as books that ne- nearly weren't, and uh, he himself can be described as someone who nearly wasn't. He goes over with, you know, lots of people from England, you know, whole villages go over and get wiped out. Well, his life happens to be spared because he gets trench fever and gets shipped home, and, you know, the rest of his company, none of them make it back. You, you note in your title that uh, Tolkien was an obscure Oxford professor, but he turned a love of words into his academic language studies, which seems like a rather stuffy pursuit. But you point out that's actually vital to, what, to his later fantasy writings. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, my, my subtitle is a bit of a mouthful, you know, how an obscure Oxford professor wrote The Hobbit and became the most beloved author of the century. But it's, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, he didn't start out to, to, to write these kind of fantasies. And... Um, he, he was a linguist. He would call, call himself back then a philologist, a lover of languages. And so he's, the story goes, and this is the one he told, so we've got to believe it's true, he's grading uh, these high school entrance exams. And he's got a big stack of what we in the States would call blue books sitting on his study there in the leafy suburbs of Oxford, uh, summer 1930, and everybody else is out having a good time. He's got to grade these, well, kind of boring essays to make a little extra money for his family. He's got four kids. He gets to one of these blue books that has an empty page, and... Uh, for reasons he said he could never explain, he has his grading pen and he writes, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. And like you said, he was a lover of languages and he thought about that word hobbit and what kind of creature that would be and what kind of hole it would be. He began telling a story to his boys 
And it might have stayed just a, a bedtime story, except, you know, as people know, there's 13 dwarves, and he started getting them mixed up, but his boys didn't. You know, Dad, last night you said that was Nori that did that. No, it was Ori. No, it was Gloin or Balin. So then he had to write it down, and because he wrote it down, he was able to lend it to the Mother Superior of a local convent there in Oxford. She got the flu, and back then there was no <laughs> cable TV or Internet when you get sick, right? So uh, to kind of keep her company, she read this manuscript. She liked it. She lent it to a student who was there at the convent. This student had a friend who was a young editor at Allen and Unwin, and this never happens today. This young editor came to Tolkien and said, you know, if you'll finish this up, I think we might be interested. Anybody who's tried to write a book today knows the opposite. You, you, you finish your book up, it's perfectly done. You send it off, and it sits in a slush pile for years. Well, I, I want to ask you about something. When he wrote that that legendary sentence there on, on those blue books, uh, he said later, I had no idea what that meant. You quote him saying, names always generate a story in my mind. And, and I just think, yeah. what, what, a, what a remarkable story from one remarkable sentence. Yeah, and I'll just say this. He, 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 names go with the person. So there's a famous opening line, I am Gandalf, and Gandalf is me. And that name fits him, just like Samwise Gamgee. His name fits him, and they got to fit each other. They have to go together. And so when he has the name, he has to come up with the character that's just, just right for it. So funny that uh, his children would say, you said the door was blue last time. And uh, I, I, one has to wonder, had the kids not questioned him on that, maybe he never would have put it down in print. Well, yeah, if his kids actually had been kind of annoying, that might never have happened. Uh, and had, uh, after he, he sends it off, he finishes it off and sends it to the publisher, Alan and Unwin, Sir Stanley Allen, Stanley Unwin, probably, has a son, Rayner, who's 10 years old, and it was Rayner's job to say thumbs up or thumbs down to every young person's book. So for one evening, the fate of Middle Earth lay in 10-year-old Rayner Unwin's hands. He gave it a strong thumbs up, and because he said to publish it, his dad published it, and that set things in motion. I was amazed by that. It gets published in 1937. Tolkien, I guess, wrote his publisher. He thinks Oxford might be good for six copies, but of course the yeah, groundswell begins to build. Year, right? and, uh, and, and soon they're asking for a sequel, and that, that didn't quite come about the way the publisher would have hoped. No, we, we think that franchises and sequels are something of the 21st century. Everybody wants a franchise and, you know, a, a three-book version or a seven-book version, you know, as many as you can. Well, this is something that's been around for a while. So, of course, these guys, they, they make a little bit of money on The Hobbit. And so they say, look, there's going to be some Hobbit lovers who, who want another Hobbit book next year in Christmas in 1938. And then maybe the literary understatement of, his, of all history tokens says, yeah, I think I can get it to you by then. <laughs> well, he doesn't <laughs> get it to him by 1938, and what he gets him is nothing at all like what they asked for. You know, he, he ends up with this 1,200-page saga, The Lord of the Rings. It's deeper. It's darker. Yeah, there's hobbits in it, but it's kind of a different story. Um, so it takes him 12 years to finish. It takes another four or five years to get published. And there's this famous cable. So Rainer Unrin, the 10-year-old boy who, who gave thumbs up to the Hobbit when he was a kid, now is in charge of a small division, including the one that has Tolkien. And, you know, he's thinking, man, this Lord of the Rings is good, but, man, we're going to lose some money on this. So he's worried. He cables his dad, who's out of the country. and says, Dad, I think this is a work of genius, but I think we're going to lose money on it. What do you want to do? And there's a famous cable back where Sir Stanley Onion says, well, if you think it's a work of genius, you can lose a thousand pounds. Well, they didn't lose a thousand pounds; they made thousands and millions of pounds <laughs> on it. Not not immediately, but but over time. And I, I, it's funny you mentioned that uh, after the Hobbit comes out, they say give us a sequel. Tolkien kept saying, "Well, I've already got some stuff in the can here, uh, as it were. I've got a collection of myths that I've created. Uh, how about that?" And the publishers kept saying, "This is not like." The Hobbit. This is not going to interest the same sorts of people. They never uh, wanted to publish it. In fact, it doesn't even get published until uh, till after Tolkien's death. 
That's right. The work you're talking about is, has been given the title The Silmarillion, right? And this was the tales that came way before The Hobbit. Way, they're way back in the, in the dawn of time with the creation of Middle-earth and, and, you know, not even any hobbits back around then. And they're very saga-like. You know, Tolkien and Lewis would love to sit around and read Icelandic sagas and Norse sagas. And this was his, his stab at that. And if anybody's read them, they're, they're not very much like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings. And the publishers rightly said, man, we don't think this is... This is where the, 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 your audience is. And so they kind of held his feet to the fire and made sure he wrote The Lord of the Rings. After he dies, you know, The Lord of the Rings is so incredibly popular. There's no more books to come. His son Christopher finishes up The Silmarillion, and it eventually does get published posthumously, but it never has the same kind of appeal that either of the other two books have. And yet you point out, and many, many critics pointed out, that, uh, that those legends that he created that sort of weaved their way into The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings were actually vital for that world of Middle-earth he subsequently created. Yeah, that is so true. In other words, without the Silmarillion, which he in his life thought was a failure, nobody wants it, nobody's interested, The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit would never have that background of history that they're set against, this depth. Um, and we get glimpses of it, you know, every now and then, that, that deep, deep past that he's drawing from the Silmarillion comes through and it gives... It gives the Lord of the Rings its profundity, its depth, its, its, its huge arc of history. No, without that, the Lord of the Rings well, it could have been more like The Hobbit and less like the Lord of the Rings, I think. You know, something that really struck me also was that uh, people describe these works as something as, as if Tolkien was going along for the journey. And, and, and in fact, because he's, these characters are popping up per his own description, he's surprised with them. He doesn't know what to make of them. Like, who is this guy? <laughs> And then That's he right. himself invented, I mean, the story sort of, uh, to hear him tell it, I suppose, like some authors do say, in essence, was writing itself. Yep, he, he kind of talked about that. And I don't know, people can probably identify with making up a story for your kids. You don't have it all mapped out. <laughs> Apparently, J.K. Rowling had mapped out all seven books of Harry Potter, what was going to happen in each, what the ghosts in each house were. She got boxes and boxes of notes. Uh, Tolkien just started writing and let the story take him where he would. If you open up the copy of The Lord of the Rings and his forward, it says, his first line is, this is a tale that grew in the telling. And there's a famous story when the hobbits finally make it to the Prancing Pony, right? They're, they're out of danger a little bit, and they finally reach the Prancing Pony. There's this hooded, hooded and cloaked figure over in the corner, and you know, they don't know who he is. And the answer is, neither did Tolkien. Well, goodness, that turns out to be Aragorn, right? The king who's going to return in the end. And the fact that he had no idea that this was the direction the story was going to go. It just goes to show you different writers write in different ways. Well, you know, too, that uh, author C.S. Lewis, quite a famous figure in his own right, uh, was an atheist at one time and apparently got modified in his religious outbook through his contact with Tolkien. And in turn, Lewis was a very important supporter of Tolkien's fantasy fiction, and, and there, was, there was quite a symbiosis there. Yeah, this literary friendship between Lewis and Tolkien is, is another tale that bears telling. We all know Lewis today as, as the, this great Christian apologist who wrote Mere Christianity and the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia and maybe Screwtape Letters. But when they first met, they were both Oxford professors, and it was Tolkien who was the devout Christian and Lewis who was the very serious atheist. Well, much to his surprise, it was Tolkien who influenced him rather than the other way around. And through Tolkien's influence and encouragement, uh, Lewis became a believer. So we could say that without J.R. Tolkien around, there might not have ever been a Narnia or a Mere Christianity or screw tape letters. We can go the other direction as well. I mentioned how long it took to write The Lord of the Rings. Tolkien quits, just completely quits, says, that's it, I'm done, this is never going anywhere. And each time he does, Lewis is there encouraging him, telling him he wants more, when am I going to have that next chapter, don't leave me hanging, kind of thing. And so, yeah, without, you could, you, you could say that, uh, that Lewis saved Middle-earth a couple times. <laughs> 
Well, speaking of the whole thing being saved, uh, apparently uh, I was shocked that not only is at one point there's only one typed copy of The Hobbit around, the same thing was true later on. There was only one and only one finished manuscript of The Lord of the Rings, I guess, at one point. Yeah, I don't know if you've got any older listeners who, who did a lot of work on a typewriter and maybe <laughs> went to the hassle of sliding in a carbon, but this is before Xerox, before you know printers, and so, yeah, it was typed up, and you lose that, you lose everything. You hear stories of people who did dissertations and kept their manuscript in their freezer or something just in case the place weren't done. Yep, one copy of The Hobbit, one single copy of The Lord of the Rings, and, you know, you lose that, oh my gosh. Anyway, they didn't lose it. They, they passed it off by hand, usually... Uh, Rainer Unwood would come to Oxford, and, and Tolkien would actually put it in his hands because, you know, you don't want to put it in the mail. You don't want to do, trust it to somebody else. So, again, uh, Middle Earth kind of hangs by a thread there with one copy. Now, having said that, numbers are hard to come by, but that one estimate, there's 150 million copies of the Lord of the Rings floating around today. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, the book is known to us as a trilogy, but I guess that had more to do with economic conditions in post-war Britain. The publisher said, we can't put this together in one volume. No one can afford it. Yeah, and that is just hard for us to think that you couldn't afford a book, but paper was short uh, in post-war Britain. Money was tight. The economy was really, really stalled out. And so, you know, it's a pretty long book, 1,200 pages, depending on how it's laid out. And they thought that 1,200 pages, it would put it out of the range of your average reader. So against Tolkien's wishes, by the way, they broke it into three parts. So we always think that he's the father of the trilogy. Well, he is, but it wasn't planned that way. It was originally planned to be one big fat book broken into three. They printed 1,500 copies of the Fellowship of the Ring. You know, again, remember they thought they were going to lose money. By the time they get to the Return of the King, well, they have to print another run of 1,500 copies. Pretty modest by today's standards, but it's like a snowball. Gradually, gradually it starts to pick up steam and get bigger and bigger. We also note that uh, this books are not universally loved. There were some critics that hated it. You noted that in 1961, Philip Toynbee announced that at last, that rings craze had finally run its course, and of course there was a huge surge in Hobbit mania in the 60s, whereas I guess Tolkien himself thought that while debating about his books, well, that, that sold more books. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's the, the fancy line they say is there's no middle ground about Middle Earth. Either you're one of these people who gets it, and you read the books, you reread them, you pass them on to your kids, you read them to your kids, or you, you're one of these people who wonders what all the fuss is about. And academics have particularly belong to the latter group, where they, they think Tolkien's fantasy is, well, kind of escapist. Well, the answer is it's not escapist. He, he really takes on two of the most perennial problems that mankind faces. The Lord of the Rings, he takes a look at the problem of power and the desire to dominate or, you know, one ring to rule them all. And, of course, in The Hobbit, he looks at the power of money. So money and power are not exactly escapist topics to me. We should note, too, that uh, Tolkien, looking at all this hubbub about the books, just said, well, you know, the fact that they are, they're proving popular, that, that inevitably itself is going to make generate a lot of criticism. Yeah, I'll tell you this. I think he was slightly disappointed or maybe slightly surprised at some of the vehemence that people, you know, you mentioned those surveys that came on the 2000. People really looked down on his works, but the answer is they continued to sell, and, and he, was, he found it gratifying. At one point, he had so many fans that he and his wife moved from Oxford to the seaside, got an unlisted phone number, unlisted address, because too many sort of hippie types from America were calling him up in the middle of the night and want to talk about Bilbo and Gandalf and Frodo and Sam. <laughs> you, th you think of the Star Trek, the Trekkies in a similar vein. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And speaking of films, uh, th these film treatments of the works, they've done extraordinarily well. They are among the highest grossing films of all time. And I, it's maybe you may not be able to answer this, but I sort of ask you, what, what do you think Tolkien might have, might have made of, of what Hollywood did with his works? Well, that's a good question. You know, the Tolkien estate is not exactly pleased with Peter Jackson. 
he did seem to reach out to a different audience, um, a, a younger, sort of more middle school boyish kind of audience. He, he took the, the battles and the loud parts and the fast parts and ramped them up and, and kind of toned down, shortened the quiet, sweet pastoral parts. I will say this, I think he got the characterization really right, and that's pretty amazing. Think of all the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people who have an idea who Gandalf is or who Bilbo is, and they go and see the movie and go, yeah, that's the guy I've been imagining. Sure, so, yeah. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Well, near the end of your book, you note that part of the popularity of these Hobbit-related stories uh, comes from, they're sort of reminding us that that our lives, like those of Hobbits, might seem small and insignificant, but there there is something heroic and mystical about about all of it. Yeah, you know, Tolkien came out of this heroic tradition, this, this Beowulf tradition, where the king slays the mighty dragon, and, and it is, is basically a very strong warrior. Well, his hero, whether it's Sam or Frodo or, or Bilbo, isn't a particularly great warrior. He's probably no more good with a sword than you or I, and his courage is really more of a moral courage, and he has his protagonists, you know, show the courage, but, but they don't do anything that we as readers couldn't do, and they remind us... Of, of what we can do, that, that there, we can make a difference. I would say his books also remind us, if you see The Hobbit uh, this week or next, of what's really important in life. And I'll give you a hint, it's not smog's gold. <laughs> well, I have to ask you, this is a remarkable tale in so many, in so many ways. Uh, what aspect of it, of, about it strikes you as the being the most remarkable? Well, you know, people, people wonder, why is Tolkien so popular? And they, they often point to, well, he's got this great plot, and it's a very good plot, and he's got great descriptions. His, his descriptions were the first ones that I, as a middle school boy, didn't skip over. And I'm sure a lot of readers know what I'm talking about. And uh, he's got great characters. You know, but there's, there's other books that have all those things. I, I kind of think that there's the reason that these books are so widely popular, and they're really popular all over the world, people of all different backgrounds, all different ages, is because they're so deeply needed today, so deeply to re- needed to remind us of who we are and what's really important and why we're here. And this is something we need to be reminded of again and again. The book is Tolkien, How an Obscure Oxford Professor Wrote the Hobbit and Became the Most Beloved Author of the Century. We've been speaking with Professor Devin Brown about this, uh, this great little book he's put together, and, and I just want to uh, recommend it highly to listeners. Thank you so much. It's been great talking to you. And, and I want to say just in an, as an addendum that uh, I've really sort of whetted my appetite to go back and read these volumes again. It's been a couple of decades now, and it's high time I, I pick them up uh, freshly. Well, if, if that's what my book's done, I'm very happy. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Great talking to you. Appreciate it. 